Let's pray together, please. Father, thank you for giving us the Bible, your holy word, preserved for us in its wonderful pages. And we pray that we would receive its truths this morning with faith and love, lay them up in our hearts and practice them in our lives. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Please turn to Exodus chapter 20, verse 7, looking at the third of the Ten Commandments. Exodus chapter 20, verse 7. Two scripture readings this morning, Exodus 20, verse 7, and then one more after that. So Exodus 20, verse 7, this is God's word. You shall not take the name of Yahweh your God in vain, for Yahweh will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. And then 2 Samuel chapter 12, 2 Samuel chapter 12. Verses 1 through 15. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 1 through 15. This is God's word. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said, There were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a great many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and his children. It would eat of his bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom, and was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. That David's anger burned greatly against the man, and he said to Nathan, The Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. He must make restitution for the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing and had no compassion. Nathan then said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, It is I who anointed you king over Israel, and it is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I also gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care. And I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added to you many more things like these. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives from before your eyes and give them to your companion and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. Indeed, you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and under the sun. And David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has taken away your sin. You shall not die. However, because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of Yahweh to blaspheme, the child that is also born to you shall surely die. So Nathan went to his house. May God bless the reading of his holy word. This morning I want to make some comments about the third commandment and what it requires, what it forbids. And I want to give a little background about David and how we get to 2 Samuel 
chapter 12 there. So that's where we're going this morning. Think about what the scripture says here. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Ecclesiastes 7 verse 1 says, A good name is better than precious ointment. Proverbs 22, 1, A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches. God's name, God's reputation, is what God is most passionate about. Self-glorification is the purpose for which God does everything that he does. Why did God create all of this? Why are we here? Why is everything around us here? Why did God decree that man would fall into sin? Why did God decree to save his church? Why did God decree the incarnation, the cross work, the righteousness, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus? Why did God decree that Herod and Pontius Pilate would rise up against Jesus and put him to a brutal and shameful death? Why do nations and empires rise and fall? The answer to, that, to all those questions is the same, to glorify the name of God. We need to know that there will surely be a day of judgment where all of the wrongs that have happened will be made right. Everyone who thought that they got away with persecuting the righteous and hurting those who love the truth, they will face divine justice. Every wrong one day will be made right. The blessed truth for Christ's redeemed blood-purchased sheep is this. Every wrong that they've committed has already been made right. At the cross of Christ, in his life of perfect righteous obedience to the Ten Commandments, imputed, credited, transferred to their account before God, completely apart from works. As we study all these commandments, you're going to see more and more how far short we still fall from the glory of God. There's only been one who has ever not taken the Lord's name in vain, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. But why does God do everything he does? Why will God do these things on the day of judgment? Why does he make every wrong right? And why does he save his people who have done so much wrong? Because God has a passionate zeal to glorify his name. And God is zealous to glorify all of his attributes as well. And so the key for us in meditating on this third commandment is this. How are we representing God's name in the world? One of the books I've been reading through on the Ten Commandments, the chapter title for the Third Commandment is Guarding God's Reputation. How are we by our lives guarding God's reputation? What's so remarkable about this Third Commandment is the reality that those who profess to know this glorious and awesome being through Christ, we have the privilege and we have the grave responsibility of representing Him in this world. Remember Paul's words about what we all are in 2 Corinthians 5.20? He says, now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. We represent him in the world. As though God were pleading through us to the world, be reconciled to God. What does it mean to be someone's ambassador? We talk about the ambassador of another nation. It's the representative who speaks for that nation. We are the representatives of Christ in the world. I don't think it really registers with any of us how serious that is. What a responsibility to contemplate before we stand up and become a communicant member of a Christian church. We swear an oath before God that we will live as becomes the followers of Christ. We swear that we will guard His name. 
That we will guard its sanctity by the way we live. It's the sacred and holy name of the Lord Jesus that we represent to the world. I had a fellow elder at the church in Ohio years ago who told me the story of one of his kids when his, his daughter was six years old. She saw him lose his temper. And he yelled and he punched something. And she looked at him with tear-filled eyes and said, Dad, I can't believe you did that. You're supposed to be a Christian. Even a child knows. My parents profess to know God. They're supposed to act a certain way. Even they can see when someone's not living up to the sacred name they profess to. When we first started having our own children, they started to grow up. And as you have kids and they start to grow up, they'll have this simple childlike understanding of what you're supposed to be like. We'd be traveling somewhere. We'd get back really late and everybody's dog tired and we, we didn't really do family worship that day. And I'd be putting them to bed at age six and seven years old. They'd say, hey, dad, we didn't read the Bible today. And I'd say, yeah, I know, it's been a long day and everyone's tired and we'll, we'll double up on it tomorrow. And then they'd break into a sermon. But dad, you've always said that reading the Bible and worshiping God's the most important thing we do every day of our lives. And that even if we don't do anything else, we're supposed to read the Bible. We're a Christian family. You're the covenant head of the home. And I'll say, okay, fine. <laughs> you see this? One of the reasons we need relationships, we need families, we need friends, we need to have eye contact with people, we need to have close friends to hold each other accountable. Your kids will hold you accountable. We all are to stir up and encourage one another to love and good works. And I need all of you to do well in my marriage, just as you guys need me. And I need you to do well in my friendships and to do well in raising my children. I need you all to help me keep working hard at my calling and my vocation. We all need each other in that way because we're helping each other glorify the name of God. What, what is the end goal of all that encouragement, that love and good works when we stir each other on, when we try to encourage each other to be better than we are? It's, we want God to look better. That's, that's the end goal of everything. We want his name to, to look good to the world. The way that we process and handle devastating trials in our lives. God's name is at stake in the way I handle this. People are watching me. People are watching you. How are we going to make him look in this? We want the name of Christ to be held in reverence by all who know that we are Christians. God does all that he does. He does all that he does to glorify his great name. You know, I actually had one of my kids tell me once, uh, after trying to make an excuse, we've been traveling, drove to Cincinnati, drove back, and everyone's tired. It's like 1030. It's way past everybody's bedtime and trying to say, we'll double up, we'll do devotions tomorrow. One of my kids actually said to me once, quote, dad, that's exactly what Satan wants you to think. <laughs> and you know what? She was right. That Hebrew noun, shawah, there, where it's in vain, the term vain, it means emptiness. Treating God's name with emptiness. It means vanity. It means worthless. Treating the name of Christ like it's worthless. Like, his honor doesn't mean anything. That's what God is saying in this commandment. We are never allowed to do that, to disrespect his name in the way we react to anything, and what we say, what we do. It's basically disrespect. We are not allowed to be disrespectful to the name of God because we're not allowed to be disrespectful to God. In the military, if a five-star general 
calls a private into his quarters and the private walks in disheveled and spits on the floor and sits in the chair in front of his desk and puts his feet up and they're dirty on his desk and says, hey, what's up, ma'am? That's not going to work. That would be disrespectful to the name and the position of that five-star general. How much more serious is it when we disrespect the name, the position of the Almighty? If we're disrespectful to the name of God by our behavior, that is one way the third commandment can be violated. The third commandment also requires us to use correctly everything by which God reveals himself. Misinterpreting scripture is a violation of the third commandment. The use of scripture to promote chattel slavery in America was a violation of the third commandment. Using scripture to promote apartheid in South Africa Racial segregation was a misuse of scripture. It was a violation of the third commandment. The crusades were a violation of the third commandment. All forms of racism are violations of the third commandment. And so far as anyone tries to push those ideas with the Bible, they are taking God's name in vain and are attributing things to him that he vehemently opposes. The Westminster Larger Catechism's questions and answers on What's forbidden and required in the third commandment? It's very lengthy and very detailed. I recommend it to you. There are scores of biblical passages we could look at, uh, ways that, that you can violate this commandment, and, and also what it requires of us in terms of the way we, we live our lives. And obviously, we're not allowed to use God's name as a cuss word. Not only is that a sin in the Old Testament, that was a capital crime. You would die for that. In Leviticus 20, Four verses 10 to 16, you read of an Egyptian and an Israelite. They were fighting each other. And the Israelite said the name of Yahweh in vain and cursed. And he was put to death. He was stoned to death for that. We are to treat God's names, his titles, attributes, ordinances, word, and works with an attitude of reverence at all times and in all places. In other words, we are to speak about, think about, read about, talk about God with the utmost respect and reverence at all places and all times. We would be angered. If the people, if people profaned or slandered the names, titles, words, and works of our most cherished friends and family, wouldn't we? If someone lies about someone that you love dearly, doesn't that anger you? Doesn't that get under your skin? The third commandment requires us to guard God's reputation. When false doctrine is taught as if it's true, the third commandment is broken. That's what Machen, J. Gresson Machen, was passionate about defending sound doctrine. And he told his liberal counterparts, you are slandering my God. And I'm going to oppose you for that. And you know what he was excommunicated for? Disturbing the peace. Because he was passionate about the truth. Jesus was born of a virgin. His death on the cross is a real substitution. It really pays for sin. Jesus is God in the fullest sense. Those are the essentials. Those are the foundation of all that we believe. And we must be passionate about them. If we read a passage of Scripture and misinterpret it, we're violating the third commandment. When we speak with with respect and reverence and humility about God, the work of Christ, the gospel, the Scriptures, God's attributes, God's dealings with His people, listen, here's another thing we all have to do. We are supposed to speak with reverence and we're never allowed to complain about God's providential dealings with us either. If we complain, if we don't like certain things that have happened that are outside of our control, it's breaking this commandment. It says in the confession there, in the larger catechism, we're not allowed to grumble or murmur. You're not allowed to murmur 
against the providence of God. And how often have I murmured about the providence of God and haven't liked this or that? It's a violation of the third commandment if we grumble, complain about his providence, his decree. Always keep in mind that there's a, a lot of overlap in all these commandments. That's one thing going through what they imply. They, they all overlap with each other. The first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, requires us to have correct theology. So does the third commandment. The third commandment requires that too. The prohibition against taking God's name in vain, it has special reference to swearing oaths and vows. If we swear oaths and vows and don't keep them, we're also violating the ninth commandment against bearing false witness. Remember the short series that we did on oaths and vows and we looked at membership vows and pastor vows and elder and deacon vows and baptismal vows and congregational vows to the pastor. We looked at all that. Remember the first truth that we learned from that series is that in scripture, we are only ever allowed to swear oaths and vows by the name of God. There are not lesser things that we can swear lesser oaths and vows by. We only swear by the sacred name of God. We're not allowed to swear in our mother's grave, not by the sun, not on a stack of Bibles, not by anything in creation. We swear by the name of God that no matter what, we're going to do what we swore to do. That's why oaths ought to be few and far between. Because if we swear by the name of God, we're calling God to witness. If I don't do what I promised, may you take vengeance on me. And that's not a position you want to be in. His name is at stake with that. Oaths in God's name, we do not intend to keep. Break the third commandment, break the ninth commandment, break the first commandment. Keeping those oaths and the vows... It keeps the third commandment. It keeps the ninth commandment. Rather than running through dozens of texts, I just want to focus on this one. I was thinking, if there's one text that really captures violation of the third commandment, it's the one that I read to you, 2 Samuel 12. So I've given you an outline there in your bulletin. I want to go through some background about David. The Lord's gracious and protective hand had been on David his whole life. David was the youngest of eight brothers, in the house of his father, Jesse. And when it, came to, when, it, when it became clear that Israel's first king, King Saul, had failed and that he was more concerned about glorifying himself than he was about honoring God, God chose David to be Israel's next king. Remember that whole narrative? Remember Saul? Saul was jealous of David and his jealousy of David led to a very long, terrible campaign to try to hunt him down and kill him. And Saul wanted to kill David. Saul was relentless, and he pursued David everywhere he went. But the Lord protected David. Many of the Psalms that we have in the Psalter were written by David while he was on the run from King Saul. And Saul's envy led him to murder many other people. I mean, there's a trail of dead bodies behind Saul as he's looking for David. And he wants to kill David for no other reason than that David, he's jealous of David. It also led Saul down the path of Practicing witchcraft. He tries to bring Samuel up from the grave through the use of sorcery and a a necromancer, a witch. And ultimately Saul does what? He kills himself. Jealousy is a powerful evil. It led him down an insane, murderous path into witchcraft and ultimately self-murder. Saul's life is a lesson on the need for contentment, isn't it? You know who else's life? is an example of the need for contentment? David's. David's. Contentment with godliness is great gain, it says in 1 Timothy 6.6. Contentment with godliness is great gain. 
Saul, as Israel's first divinely appointed king, he represented God on earth, and Saul represented God very badly. Saul's lack of contentment with who he was, his lack of contentment with his abilities, with his station in life, led him into a whole host of other sins. He hated David because David was a better warrior than he was. Remember Saul's least favorite song? Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. God favored David because David was, in God's own words, a man after my own heart, he called him. God loved David, and David loved God. David loved Yahweh. He loved the God of his father, Jesse. He had a passionate zeal for the sanctity of the name of his Lord, and he had great confidence in God, too. When Goliath, the the giant Philistine warrior, when when he defied the armies of Israel day after day after day, David finally shows up with some food provisions for his brothers from his dad. And he sees Saul's army and he sees Goliath come over the field and he's out there cursing the armies of Israel by the gods of, of Philistia. And David was angered by this. David's spirit was provoked by this. 1 Samuel 17, 26. David spoke to the men who stood by him saying, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? What does David have a zeal for? The third commandment. How can you let this guy disgrace our Lord? How can you let him drag our Lord's name to the the gutter to curse us by his fake gods? So what does David do? He volunteers to fight Goliath. But the guy is so small he can't even fit into Saul's armor. It's too big for him. And what is so striking about this event is that David has supreme confidence in Yahweh. David loved God and he was angered that an unbeliever, a man who didn't even know the Lord, would dare to defy the name of his God. To defy the armies of the Lord and to try to make the Lord look bad. David's zeal for the glory of the name and the reputation of the Lord is what drove what happened. Listen to it. Just listen to the word of God. 1 Samuel 17, 40. Then he took his staff in his hand and he chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook and put them in a shepherd's bag and a pouch which he had and his sling was in his hand and he drew near to the Philistine. So the Philistine came and began drawing near to David, and the man who bore the shield went before him. And when the Philistine looked about and saw David, he disdained him, for he was only a youth, ruddy and good-looking. So the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword, with a spear, and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of Yahweh of armies, of the Lord of armies, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you and take your head from you. And this day I will give the carcasses of the camp of the Philistines to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel." What kind of confidence is that? This young kid goes on the field and says to a warrior who's nine feet tall, you're dead, I'm going to cut your head off, and I'm going to kill everyone in your army too. 
then all, the, then all the assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. So it was when the Philistine arose and came near to meet David that David hastened and ran toward the army to meet the Philistine. Then David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and he slung it and struck the Philistine in his forehead so that the stone stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the earth. What does that remind you of? Remember what what God told Adam and Eve and the devil? I'm going to crush the head of the serpent. What What do the bad guys keep having done to them throughout redemptive history? Their heads keep getting smashed. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. But there was no sword in the hand of David. Therefore David ran and stood over the Philistine, took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. And when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. David was godly, was passionate, He was strong. He was tough. He was a warrior. He was smart. And he had a deeply personal love for the one true and living God. And David reacted with righteous anger when Goliath defied the name of his God. He was provoked by that. And David asked indignantly to all the soldiers standing there, Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the Lord goes on to establish David. He protected David. He made him very wealthy. He made him a very powerful king. And he made him the representative of God on earth who ruled over the kingdom of God and the nation of Israel. Everywhere David went, he prospered. All that he put his hands to succeeded because all that he did was to honor and glorify the Lord that he adored and loved and whose name he felt obligated to protect at all costs, unlike Saul. But David had a massive moral collapse, didn't he? A sudden, catastrophic lapse into a whole series of very serious sins. Sins that were not merely sins against God, they were also capital crimes against the state. And the whole lurid affair is described in 2 Samuel chapter 11. You want to know the whole story? Go phrase by phrase, verse by verse, through 2 Samuel 11. So many lessons for us to learn from that passage. I want you to notice, look at 2 Samuel 11, verse 2. 2 Samuel 11, verse 2. Look at it. Now when evening came, David arose from his bed and walked around on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful in appearance. Okay, stop there. David goes on to ask about her. And then he sends for her. And his life and her life are never the same Much for the worst. What's even more remarkable is that David, after all this happens, he just sort of kind of tries to press on with being king, with this pregnant woman as his wife in his house, whose husband he murdered. It's like David just wants to pretend nothing really happened. He covers his tracks really well. Hey, we're only human. Nobody's perfect. Is this really that big of a deal? Who knows what all was going on in David's mind during this time. But what a far cry. What a far cry from the young man who said, Who is this uncircumcised Philistine? One of you needs to go out there and kill him in the name of the Lord. And in fact, I'm going to do it. What a far cry from that. How did we get here? How did we get from a guy that was so concerned about the name of God who suddenly doesn't seem to care at all? How did this happen? 
You know, it takes a parable from a prophet of God. Let's look at it. Look at verse 1 through 4 again. And the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said, There were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a great many flocks and herds. Verse 3. But the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he bought and nourished. And it grew up together with him and his children. It would eat of his bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom. And it was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man and he was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. It's a heartbreaking parable, isn't it? It tugs at your heartstrings. It creates pity in your heart for the poor man. You can almost see the poor man crying, weeping. No, don't take this, this, this animal that is like a child to me that, that I've nursed and it eats dinner with me and my children. Don't take our little ewe lamb. The rich man's got plenty of lambs to spare. He's got a great many flocks. And this traveler comes along and he takes the little daughter-like ewe lamb and slaughters it and prepares it as a meal for the wafer. What audacity, what arrogance, the total disregard for human feeling in this poor man. How could anyone be so ruthless, so devoid of humanity, so selfish, so pitiless, so merciless? And it had the desired effect. Look at verse 5. David's anger burned greatly against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. He must make restitution for the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and had no compassion. And the first part of verse 7, Nathan said to David, you are the man. What in the world had been going on with David all this time? Did David forget that murder and adultery and lying were sinful? Did he forget how the Lord had protected him and strengthened him to kill a lion and a bear with his bare hands when he was a teenager? Did he forget how the Lord helped him to kill the giant warrior Goliath with one smooth stone to his forehead? Did he forget how God protected him and favored him from the wrath and the irrational, relentless, bloodthirsty pursuit of Saul? Did he forget all of his military victories, his wealth, his blessings? Did he forget how much he loved God? Did he forget how much he wanted to serve and glorify God and protect his name? The answer to all those questions is a clear and emphatic no. He hadn't forgotten any of those things. But what a terrifying narrative. I have no doubt many preachers have preached on this with just as much passion as I am right now who have gone on to commit the same sins. Jesus instructed us to pray. There's a reason for this. Every time we pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Even when you're not in those moments where you're struggling with certain sins that are a problem at times for you, you still need to pray for strength to resist temptation in those moments where you feel the greatest strength. In fact, when you feel the greatest strength, you're the most vulnerable. Because it's then you think you don't need His power. Jesus ordered us to pray that because we do need his power at all times to walk and live a holy life and not to besmirch the character of God's name. The alluring world around us, our own sinful hearts, and the devil himself are very powerful forces, oppositions to our godliness. We've got to guard our hearts and guard our eyes and guard our ears and guard our thoughts and David failed to do those things 
David was not where he was supposed to be. 2 Samuel 11, verse 1. You see the very last sentence of verse 1? The very last little phrase of verse 1 of 2 Samuel 11? But David stayed at Jerusalem. And the thing is, we're not told why. Why did he stay there? It was the season in the spring when kings go out to war with their armies. But David lingers behind. Proverbs 27, verse 8. Like a bird that wanders from its nest is a man who wanders from his place. When our feet are not where they're supposed to be, we're going to get in trouble. When our bodies are not where we're supposed to be, we're going to get in trouble. You know, my parents always told me we'd see baby birds that would fall out of the nest and we'd all feel bad for them and try to get them and stuff them back up in their nests in the trees. And I I did that again and again. And all the other birds would jump out of the nest and then you try to gather them all. And my parents said, "Don't don't try to put them back. If one falls out, it's done for. Leave it alone. You're going to mess up everything else. Where have you been lately? Where have I been lately? A man who wanders from his place where he's supposed to be is like a bird that wanders from its nest. It's going to die. It doesn't have protection. David was a bird that wandered from his nest. There are places we've got to be. Church on Sunday morning and Sunday evening when we have services. There are places we ought to be with our families, with our church families, around the table together, with our spouse, listening and communicating, in the living room with our Bibles open, at work on time, on time for our appointments. David was not where he was supposed to be. That one foolish decision brought unspeakable misery into his life, into his family's life, into his children's lives, and brought death and heartache to many others. But David stayed at Jerusalem. What a, what a, a sentence that doesn't seem to mean much of anything. But David stayed at Jerusalem. David, why'd you do that? Why'd you do this? David, what are you doing wandering around on your roof when you're supposed to be out with your armies at war? David, why are you staring at a beautiful woman that's married to someone else? David, why are you asking about her? David, why did you send messengers to take her? Dear congregation, and I say to myself, be where you're supposed to be. Don't look at what you're not supposed to look at. So-called smaller sins are always preludes to bigger ones. So stand fast, be brave, be strong in the grace that is in Christ, Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 2. Now you have David. David is sitting on top of a mountain of iniquity and has apparently hardened his heart to such an extent that he's gotten himself into some kind of spiritual numbness over all of it. It's all been swept under a dusty, proverbial mental rug and cataloged away in his mind, and he doesn't seem to care anymore. Are we all capable of that? Being so zealous at one season of life for the glory of God and then not caring in another? But now that God, through Nathan, has stirred David's anger. I mean, David's anger is burning against the rich man that Nathan told him about. It took this poor man's little ewe lamb and killed it when he's got flocks to spare. And David is actually so mad, he demands the guy's death for this. And Nathan lets him have it. David, I'm talking about you. You are this man. David, you are the pompous, self-absorbed, greedy pitiless, compassionless, cruel man who took that poor man's only earthly delight. 
David, you are the one who deserves to die. The prophet continues by reminding David of how good God had been to him already in his life. And folks, when we sin or we're thinking about sinning, God could write a paragraph to us too, couldn't he? Look at verse 7b. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, It is I who anointed you king over Israel. It is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I also gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care. And I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And as if that had been too little, I would have added to you many more things like these. Think about it. How could David be discontent? How could he be a malcontent? What more could a man want in life? You know what, sinners... We find a way, don't we? We find a way to be discontent. How many times does the Bible, does God command us, be content? Hebrews 13, 5. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. God is saying to us, I ought to be enough for you. Being saved and knowing Christ should be enough for you. But be content with such things as you have. Psalm 37, 4. Delight yourself in the Lord. He will give you the desires of your heart. Philippians 4, 11, I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. 1 Timothy 6, 6. Godliness with contentment is great gain. But those who desire to be rich, and I would just say, fill in the blank. Those who desire another man's wife. Those who desire to be more talented. Those who desire what someone else has. Drown themselves in harmful lusts, in perdition, and destruction. For the love of those other sins is the root of every kind of evil. What was Solomon's downfall? Women. What was David's downfall? Women. What was Elisha's traveling companion? Gehazi. What was his downfall? Greed, covetousness for silver and for the changes of clothes that Naaman had. He lied about that. I guarantee you having leprosy for the rest of his life was not worth it. What's behind all sinful and evil desire? Discontentment. Discontentment violates the third commandment. Look at the rebuke Nathan delivered to David again there in verses 7b through 8. God piled every earthly blessing a man could want into David's hands, but it still wasn't enough. David, you are the rich man in this parable. David... Being the rich man in Nathan's parable, he saw an attractive woman, the one great delight of the poor man, Uriah, and David wants what he has. He's coveting another man's wife. What a testimony to the God-shaped hole in every human heart, even in a Christian's heart. We can try to fill that with other things. Have you ever noticed, too, people with every material possession that anyone could possibly imagine are often the most unhappy people in the world? People that have everything often are miserable. But David was a believer. David's a true child of God. He was born again. He was indwelt by the Spirit. And the thing is, David did love God. He did love God. He sincerely loved God. But this event shows just how dark even the heart of the redeemed can turn in bad circumstances if we let our guard down. Look at verse 9. Here's a great question. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. 
What was despised by David's actions was the commandments of the Lord. Obedience to the commandments of the Lord have been despised. To despise God's commandments is to despise Him. Proverbs 14.2 The one who walks in uprightness fears the Lord, but he who is perverse in his ways despises God. David had been perverse in his ways, and as Nathan says here, he despised God. He despised the commandment of God. He took Uriah's wife, he committed adultery, he committed murder, and then he lied. Look at verse 10. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me. Notice he doesn't say, because you disobeyed me, which he did. It's, you despise me. David, you've hated me by doing this. And have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Verse 11 and 12. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion. And he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. What's that talking about? Absalom. Absalom would do that later. His son. Verse 12. Indeed, you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and under the sun. The rest of David's life is filled with unending turmoil in his own family. Murder, rape, humiliation, and heartache were his lot in life after this. But God still showed him much grace and kindness through all of it. And that brings us to the main point of walking through this prophetic confrontation with David. The rebuke works. And David is finally broken. Look at verse 13 and 14. And David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has taken away your sin. You shall not die. However, because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born to you shall surely die. So Nathan went to his house. David broke the tenth commandment by covenanting another man's wife, Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. David broke the sixth commandment when he murdered Uriah and several other men died in that too. David broke the seventh commandment by committing adultery. You could argue that David put, a, put sexual lust before God and thus broke the first commandment, had another God before God. He had a graven image of sex in his mind that he worshipped in God's place. He broke the second commandment. He stole Uriah's wife. He broke the eighth commandment. He pretended that everything was normal, everything was well with being king and had his new wife, Bathsheba, who's with child, just like everything's great and wonderful. And he broke the ninth commandment, bearing false witness. But here's the real question. Why did God take the life of that child? What does verse 14 tell us? God doesn't say, however, because by this deed you committed adultery. Nor does he say, by this deed you murdered. Or by this deed you have borne false witness. By this deed you have coveted. He doesn't say, by this deed you have stolen. He says, by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. David represented God's church and God himself to the nations around them. The nations around them, the Philistines and the, everyone else that lived in those areas, they had heard of Yahweh. They knew all about him. They knew about the exodus. They knew about the plagues. They knew about the conquest of the promised land. They knew about the walls of Jericho and the miraculous battles. But David had drugged the name of God through an open sewer by these terrible sins. And when people who profess to know God sin like this, Please hear me. There's always forgiveness. There's always mercy. 
It's not like you lose your salvation. Adultery is an awful sin. Murder is a terrible evil. Lying is a wicked vice. But the real evil behind them all is that they give reasons to God's enemies to make light of his name. What's the point of church discipline? Why do we do church discipline? Yes, you want people to walk closely with Christ. You want them not to destroy their lives. But the real issue, the real thing at stake is the glory of God. If we who have sworn we're going to live as becomes the followers of Christ don't, we give reasons to God's enemies to mock Him. Why is it that every time a high-profile Christian sins is plastered all over the news, all over social media, God's enemies are always looking for reasons to blaspheme and disrespect Him. And that's why they watch us carefully. David being the king of Israel, a very visible, respected, looked up to individual in the world, he had, by despising God and committing these sins, he had given the mouths of God's and his people's enemies many reasons to blaspheme him. Yeah, these people who are a light to the world around us, look at what he did. He's a hypocrite. The worst part of all sin is not the earthly consequences we bring on ourselves. It's not that we lose assurance. It's that we make God look bad. In closing, listen to one Bible verse. 1 Peter 2.15. 1 Peter 2.15. Listen. This is the will of God. That by doing good, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. God's will for you as a Christian. You may have a million temptations in your life, but God's will is that you, by doing good, would stop the mouths of God's adversaries. That our lives would silence them. What all of us who are redeemed by Christ and reconciled to God and love God want is to put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. Anyone who opposes God's truth in Scripture can only do so because they're ignorant, because they're foolish, or both. They're always rebellious. The ignorance of foolish men will manifest itself in blasphemy against God. But what a blessing it is when God's people live their lives in a way that the enemies of God have nothing to say. Put to silence. David, you haven't put anybody to silence. You've put all kinds of words in their mouths now, in the mouths of my enemies. They're going to mock and make fun of me. They're going to blaspheme me because of what you've done. What a joyous and wonderful thing it would be if all of us made it our purpose in this world to, before we sin, think about how does this make God look? How does this make Him look? What if the world could see this? What if the world ends up seeing this? What do they think of Him? What do they think of my Lord? When we, by our good works, adorn the name of Christ and put them to silence, put God's enemies to silence, God is glorified. Now I want to say in closing, all of us can bless the name of the Lord that He died for all of our violations of the third commandment. Amen? I'm thankful for that. And that Jesus always held God's name in reverence and respect. He never misrepresented him by his actions to anybody. But let the sanctity of God's name be what motivates our pursuit of holiness. Gratitude and thankfulness to God should motivate us to want to sanctify that name, to be content in Christ, and to lead a righteous and godly life. Let gratitude for your salvation stir your heart not to take his name in vain. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus' perfect obedience to the third commandment. 
He never gave any reason to anyone to blaspheme your holy name. And all of us have to confess and admit together, we've given many reasons at times to your enemies to blaspheme you. May we be determined with the help of your spirit and grace and your word, armed with the armor of salvation and the sword of the spirit, seek to obey this commandment and gratitude to you, knowing that even when we do it well, we still need a savior. Even when we do it well, we're still so far from perfect. But may our lives and our good works put to silence your enemies. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.